Hey, it's Jim Paff again, and this is the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are evil because they want to run your lives. We promote culture and government that values voluntary decisions left up to you. This is a way to promote justice and kindness that thinks about the needs of others before ourselves. Go to our website, politicsisntnice.com, and join our email list. The button's right there at the top right, politicsisntnice.com. We've got a very special guest today on the Against Nice podcast, Victor Davis Hansen. He's a Hoover Institution fellow. You hear about him all over the uh, airwaves. You'll hear him on numerous uh, programs on television and many other places, as well as his uh, regular columns that uh, show up, I believe, in National Review and other places. So uh, going to be a great discussion from one of the great thinkers in America right now, Victor Davis Hanson. Let's uh, get ready for the podcast. Well, we're uh, so pleased to have Victor Davis Hanson on with us today on the Against Nice podcast. Uh, he's uh, with uh, Stanford University and um, in Hoover Institution, I believe, correct? Yes. And um, one of the great clear voices of what's going on in this country. So thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you doing that. Thank you for having me. So we're looking at this. You've been a great proponent of understanding what Donald Trump has been, had to do to – I don't know, it's the, the timing of him coming in as president and this particular time, and then bam, here we are in this COVID-19 situation, which just, just doubles down on problems that are there. We've gone through all of the impeachment stuff, all these things that have happened. How, how are we faring with what Donald Trump has been doing through this COVID-19 thing? I think that's really a, an interesting story to me. I'm just curious your insights. Yeah, well, we the only real metrics we have because um, are how are we doing in comparison to other countries with sort of an allowance being made. And the only way that we can measure that is the data of the population versus the number of deaths because we don't know the denominator of the number of cases because of the, you know, the vagrancies of testing. So if you look at the number of people who have died per million in the United States and you compare it with other countries, uh, we've done better, I think, than almost every major European country with the exception of Germany. Some people have argued that Germany has a much more stringent criteria for counting deaths to COVID. Um, that said, if you take just New York out of the equation and New Jersey, the New York City corridor, then U.S. deaths dropped by about half, even though they, they constitute only about 9% of the population. And if you do it that way, and you readjust those deaths to what the average is in the United States, rather than being, you know, 1,500 per million or something like fantastic number, rather than 250 or something, then you get the United States pretty, getting pretty close to where Germany is. And so I think in that sense, we're doing pretty well. Uh, 
Donald Trump is faulted because he said it was like the flu or you should use off-label hydroxychloroquine or UV lighting might help or uh, we'll get through it. And the, the weird thing about that is that that's pretty much what Anthony Fauci said all during January and February. He said it was going to be like the flu. You can go out. That's what Como said. That's what, and everybody said that because that's what the World Health Organization said. It wasn't transmissible, and the Chinese government misled the world. And that Trump has sort of an instinctual cunning because it turned out that hydroxychloroquine is more useful than not useful, from what we can tell from frontline doctors and that UV lighting and things like that seem to have some help as well. We have about 85,000 dead. It looks like at the rate we're going, we're going to probably get up to 100 or 110,000 before the winter when it starts to, to taper off. That's about what we suffered from the flu in 1967 or 1958. So it was a really bad flu year, not like as some people predicted 1918 when there was a half a million people dead. So that said, I think he's done pretty well and you can see it by the criticism of him. He's been criticized so far for not uh, locking down and going into social distancing earlier and more comprehensively. And now you can see the criticism shift. It's more Donald Trump is the next Herbert Hoover that he kept us locked down or he didn't do enough for the economy. And when he lets, so I think that his critics are in a dilemma because whatever he does, they're against. But when states open up like Georgia and Florida and they get their economy starting to uh, jumpstart again, then they're criticized. But if they stay down, they're criticized. They're criticized for everything. And in that context, this virus has been weaponized in the way that impeachment and Ukraine and Mueller and Stormy and the 25th Amendment, the Emoluments Clause and the Electors going back to 2017. And he doesn't yeah, I mean, see Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, let, let's put this in historical context. What's, what is real? I mean, we all talk about this. What's really different about what we're doing now as a country as what we've done in similar situations in the past. I think Donald Trump was the first president that didn't have military experience or prior political office. And he didn't have the beneficiaries of the Republican party infrastructure that, and they, by that, I mean, if he was a normal candidate, you would have national review. You would have had weekly standard when it was in existence. You would have all these people rallying to his side and we would have the normal bi-party rivalries. But what we had this time was the elite of the Republican party found his message antithetical to, you know, pro-China, open borders, cheap labor, uh, creative destruction as far as economics go, and don't antagonize people by getting out of the Iran deal or the Paris Climate Accord, the Romney-McCain message. So he had it difficult because a lot of the people, the kingpins, a George Will or Bill Crystal or David Fromm or Jonah Goldberg, all of those people now are his most vehement critics. And that's new. We've never seen that before, where the Republican Party or even the Democratic Party would have their intellectual hierarchy attacking in a more venomous fashion their president than the opposition. And then 
and again, he's, he's uh, heterodox in the sense that he doesn't believe that there is a, a, a type of presidential decorum. So Mitt Romney, had he been president, would have never said Sleepy Joe. So Trump believes that he's trying to redefine the way the president acts, and that gets people very angry. He would argue if he were here, I think, well, Obama in mellifluous, sober and judicious tones uh, turned loose the intelligence agency and tried to destroy a political opponent in a way that we've never seen, the greatest scandal in 50 years. But he did so very properly in his comportment and in his speech and his vocabulary. I'm, I don't play that game. I'm just what you see. And people, that's striking. People had not seen that. But maybe not since Andrew Jackson, the last president. Harry Truman a little bit. But yeah. Jackson and Truman were the only two presidents that I can think of that were pretty blunt, of course. Well, I th one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast, I, I had a, many years ago, I had a discussion with Andrew Breitbart. He was helping me with some stuff here in Colorado. We'd started to get to know one another. He had mentioned, as an agnostic, how he appreciated the Judeo-Christian roots of freedom how he felt like he needed to stand up for Christians because they were too nice and wouldn't stand up for themselves. <laughs> and I, you know, his, the whole advent of this Andrew Breitbart thing was another one of these major changes in American politics. We've always had our rancorous times here and there, but from that point to now, and I don't think Donald Trump's feeding off of it, but he aligns with it a well. We change the way we do debate. I've, I always say that I think nice people, the way we commonly think about it, can tend to be, well, their, their anthem is the bumper sticker that says mean people suck. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but yet there's this better idea of kindness that thinks about the benefit of others that will still be very direct, run toward justice, take action. Are, are we in a place right now especially with Donald Trump on the scene where we're kind of rethinking how we're doing this public debate and will it have any lasting uh, benefit in the future? Well, I, as a historian, I try to put in a context. I think there was a sense that uh, the Republicans had played by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. In other words, the last time they won 51% of the vote was George H.W. Bush against Dukakis, and that was because Bush, remember, left the convention in 1988, 17 points behind Dukakis, even though he had been vice president under Reagan. So he turned Lee Outwater loose, and Lee Outwater was sort of a, a Bulgarian, and he, but he was a very effective one. And so the next thing we knew, there was a Willie Horton ad. There was the Boston Tea Party hat ad. Uh, the Boston Harbor was polluted ad. Then there was the Dukakis and the helmet and the tank ad. And when Lee Atwater got done with Mike Dukakis, he looked like an effete, Eastern, incompetent mayor, and Bush won. But then because he was a Marcus of Queensbury guy, Bush felt bad about it. And then unfortunately for Bush, Lee Atwater got a brain tumor and died. So at that point, the Republican establishment came back and Bill Clinton took that lesson. He created the war room. 
And Bill Clinton, when he got done with George H.W. Bush, you would have thought that he was Herbert Hoover. We were in the greatest depression in history, even though it wasn't that bad. And they maligned him, and then they kind of colluded and got Ross Perot to encourage him. He took 19% of the vote. And at that point, the Republicans lost again under Bob Dole, and then they lost the popular vote in 2000 under W. They barely beat John Kerry. Then they lost with McCain, and then they lost with Romney. So four out of the five elections, they lost the popular vote at a time when at the grassroots, they were doing very well at the state governors and legislature. So then Trump comes along and he says, you know what? You guys don't mention Reverend Wright. You don't, when Candy Crawley hijacks the debate, you don't do anything. Romney, Paul Ryan, they don't know how to fight. And you got, what you've done is you've sawed the limb off your supporters. So a guy in Michigan, a guy in Pennsylvania, a guy in Ohio, a guy in Wisconsin, they say to themselves, working, mostly working white class, I don't want to go out and campaign for these guys. I don't want to vote for them because you know what happens? As soon as they get in office or as soon as they get on the campaign trail to get to office, somebody makes fun of them. They apologize. They say, oh, I'm for open borders or legal immigration is an act of love if I'm Jeff Bush. And four to eight million, whoever, they, we don't know the exact number, just didn't show up. So then Trump comes along and says, you know what, I'm just going to look at the Electoral College and I'm going to get those guys who either voted for Obama or didn't vote in 2008 and 2012. And the way to get them is to tell them that I don't believe they're deplorables or irredeemables or clingers or dregs or whatever the term the Democrats call them but I'm going to try to get them on a, a series of issues. I'm going to get them on closing the border so wages aren't eroded. I'm going to be tough on China. I'm going to be tough on international trade. I'm going to say that we're going to get assembly manufacturing back to the Midwest. And uh, I'm going to be tough on abortion and I'm going to be pro-gun. And I'm going to do all of that in a really tough manner, if you saw at the rallies. And that's where we are. And the Democrats under Obama, I mean, if you think about it, time that Obama got done with John McCain, we, he, he was rendered into a scene, they made him appear like he was a senile old codger who didn't know how many houses he had and was conducting an affair and was a wealthy old white guy, not a war hero. And when they got done with Mitt Romney, we were told that he had an elevator in his house, that his wife was an equestrian, he didn't talk to his garbage man. He put the dog on top of his roof. He was 16 years old. He hazed somebody. Uh, he had a binder with women's name. You name it, they just tore those two guys apart. Yeah. And everybody said this was decor decorous and this is the way campaign should be run. But it was all asymmetrical. But then the Republicans came back under Trump and said, you know, I would rather win ugly than lose nobly. I'm tired of it. And so that's why we got Trump. And he understood that. And is it going to, you have two views of whether it coarsens the dialogue because he stoops down to the level of the, of the hard left, or he creates deterrence and tells the hard left, if you want to play this game, I'm going to play it better than you are. So let's not play it and let's all stop. But his attitude is they won't stop unless they're forced to stop. 
So if I go to a press conference and people start in on me, uh, they're going to laugh at Bush or they would laugh at Romney, but they're not going to laugh at me. I'm going to take them on. I'm going to call them out or I'm going to walk away and not even pay any attention. And that looks like it's coarsening, but in the larger context of history, that was the rationale behind it. And it drives the left crazy. It really does. You know, consider, I consider this though as well. You, you talk a lot about Republican response to all these national elections. Um, I look along the way and usually through the media, but sometimes very directly that course manner of politicking the Democrats have been doing, I mean, for a long time, but maybe for me, sort of the line starts with Teddy Kennedy borking Robert Bork. And it's been the uh, lambasting of Republicans on that side constantly without response. Is that something you see as well? Oh yeah. That's what created Trump because, uh, and we could see it as soon as he got elected there. First of all, Hollywood had a contest to see whether you should behead him or blow him up or burn him alive or shoot him or stab him. I mean, they ran out of ways to kill him, whether it was Snoop Dogg or Madonna or Kathy Griffith, or you name it. And then we had people like Maxine Waters saying, you know, he's an alt-right, complete racist. He's a Ku Klux Klanner. We had Nancy Pelosi tearing up the State of the, we've never seen that, the State of the Union address when he handed it to her. We had, he was only in office a week and we had 60 people uh, file impeachment here uh, motions and then they didn't even show up for the State of the Union or the inauguration address, 60 of them. So it was war from the very beginning and the, the media, especially CNN, I mean, they lied about the meeting in Trump Tower. They lied about the Mueller investigation. They lied about all of this. And then we've never seen from the day one First thing that happened the election, the next day they sued in three states and said, oh, the, elect- the election machines were wrong. And then when that didn't work, they said, we can, we're going to appeal to the electors that they should not honor the tallies in their individual states. And that was on a Hollywood commercial. That, that went on. And then suddenly we were told that the emoluments clause that Trump had got wealthy and they showed that he lost a billion dollars his family had. Then they said, you know, he's crazy. He even took the Montreal assessment test. Can you imagine Joe Biden taking that? They bought a Yale psychiatrist, Bandy Lee. And she testified without ever seeing the patient that he was nuts and should be removed physically from office. And then there was Michael Cohen and Stormy. And then we went into 22 months of Robert Mueller and he found out just what we all knew from the beginning. There was no Russian collusion and you couldn't really obstruct a non-crime. So there was no obstruction that was actionable. And then we went into impeachment with Ukraine and it's, we've never seen anything quite like that. And people are saying to themselves, Trump is crude, he's angry, he insults people, but they usually conclude his supporters, at least, they say something along the following, I couldn't get up in the morning and take what he's take. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't take that abuse. And two, whatever he dishes out, they deserve. Yeah. Well, so if you cast it out broader in the culture, obviously there's a large number of people that are reacting positively to all this with Trump, kind of in a rah-rah fashion, sometimes on substance, sometimes not. I mean, they're just glad that someone's fighting. But what's going on in the culture in general 
that is, that led up to this and what, I mean, how's this going to play out in the future? Cause you know, you look at what happened in the 1960s. I, th- I think we're still seeing this speaking in the classical sense, a uh, hedonistic culture kind of playing out that shows up in so many areas of, of, of the way we think, not just in the personal moral behavior and all these things, but just, you know, a seeking of answers and solutions and pleasure. All that is on an undercurrent of all this. How, how does that relate? What, well, what, what are your insight three, on that? There's two or three things that have happened that have changed the way that we conduct politics in general that transcend Trump and his opponents. The first is we never had social media like that. I think Obama was the first person to try Twitter and people were shocked when he did it. And what I'm getting at is that there are, there's no audit, there's no hierarchy, it's radically democratic. So somebody can just go on and say something or attack somebody and they do it anonymously a lot. And then that's like an electronic uh, gladiatorial match where everybody's hand, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down and it, it speeds up the dialogue. It, it creates bravery because you're anonymous and it leads to I'll, I'll, I'll I'll top that, I'll top that. And that's superimposed on a global record of everything you've ever said. So if I'm saying something to you right now and somebody doesn't like me and I've got a lot of enemies and this goes on the web or whatever we call it, then somebody's going to call me and say, you know what? In 2002, you gave a lecture at the University of Kentucky. And in 2011, they put that tape on without telling you online and you said something that contradicts this. So you're a blank, blank liar. And then the next thing you know, you get 20 emails saying you're a blank, blank liar. That, that whole electronic speeding up of things and the, the ability to, to, to go back and, and follow every word a person spoken, that's new. The second thing is we're in a globalized world now and the levels of wealth, uh, are just unimaginable. We used to, if you look at the four, uh, Forbes 500 20 years ago, in today's dollars, if you had about $2 billion, that was it. You were the top guy. And now because some of these people on the coast, in the East and West Coast, the Bill Gates, the Soros, Zuckerberg, Bezos, they have markets of 7 billion people for their products, whether it's high tech or whether it's finance, Michael Bloomberg or what media, whatever it is. So there's enormous amounts of money into this political discourse. You saw it with Michael Bloomberg, a billion dollars in two months. And that means that we're saturated with ads that you go on Google, you search something, Google will reorder the searches depending on what the message, and that's new. And then finally, let's be honest, as a professor, I can tell you about 90% of the professors now are 60s deans, presidents, and they have taught a whole new generation. What they've taught them is the university has to be woke. It's not disinterested, inductive information. It's we are opposed to a racist, sexist, classist society, and you're here for four to six years, and we're going to prep you as a social activist to go combat it. And that's true of the media too. They come out of journalism schools and they're young and they don't know much, but they've been told, here it is. Here's the party line, climate change, identity politics, socialism, uh, 
open borders and that's your job and that's when and that's why the Shorenstein Center it's a very liberal media watchdog research tank says that Trump received 93% negative media coverage we've never had that before so I think yeah there's institutional changes that have warped the political dialogue well beyond Trump and his enemies I remember in the 1980s when I was at Indiana University it was very active, always discussing things, challenging professors even. I was always kind of straightforward in that way. But I remember having these arguments and discussions with people as a young guy then. And it would be heated debate or whatever, but you'd kind of walk away from it. And in some cases, you still had friendly relationships with these people you, you disagreed with. I remember feeling that the university, though, was trying to indoctrinate me or whatever, you know, as a young kid and maybe going overboard. I got a lot, still got, still got a lot of good information, but I still had that, that feeling that there was something going on that wasn't in my best interest. It seems to have exploded way beyond that now. Yeah, I started as a professor in 1984 and where I taught was mostly liberal professors but they weren't hardcore progressives. And by that, I mean, if I had a class on history, I could critique Marxism or I could say something nice about the medieval church if I wanted to. And I didn't know that people were taping me because they didn't have iPhones. And we didn't have this Victorian culture where if uh, I couldn't say, if a young woman came in and shook my hand, I tapped her on the shoulder or something, that was okay. When I got done, 22 years later, I learned that if I said something positive about Christianity, negative about global warming, that there would be some student in the class that taped that without me knowing and on their iPhone and was outraged. And that person could be worth very affluent, but she or he would say they were victimized, it was terrible, they would go to the dean, and I saw this happen to a professor right across the hallway for him. He put his arm on a woman's neck and patted her. The next thing she said, she was intimidated and they fired him for that. You know, 40 years teaching. So there was a whole new climate and it was very hard for people to figure out because it was on the one hand Victorian that you couldn't even act in a relaxed, casual manner. But at the same time, it was 60s uncouth and crude. And by that, I mean, students started saying the F word in class. Like, I don't give an F, right in class. Our professors would say that as well. So then it fooled people. They thought, well, this is back to the 60s. Girls would come in with pierced noses, pierced bellies. Uh, guys would come in without a shirt on sometimes. And people would say the F word, they would be freewheeling. And then the professors would go off topic. And just when you thought the whole thing was chaotic and left wing and revolutionary, it was all being recorded or there was all these rules that they would use in a political sense. So it, it, it confused so many people and, and it ended up being Victorian that you couldn't say anything, you couldn't do anything. You were always under scrutiny or being watched. And finally it was, you know, you couldn't say anything about race you couldn't say anything about transgenderism you couldn't say anything about gender you couldn't say even if you want to discuss it and yet the discussions that these people were carrying on were vulgar they were full of profanity people were dressed like they were at a you know 
fair or carnival. So it was a, it's a, it is a baffling, you know, heterodox experience. Are, are we going to be the same country? I know it's hard to predict these things, but are we going to be the same country 30, 40 years from now that we are now or have been in the past? Or is there will some remnant remain? Well, you know, that's a long time. We've been, we're the longest democracy, 237 years, I guess. But when you look at Rome, was Rome the same republic 150 BC as it was 100 and, you know, 180? No. But was there something that was continuous that people could recognize as Roman? Yeah. So I think people will be still be speaking the same language. The infrastructure will look the same, but we're going to be more radically along that lines. We're destroying citizenship as we've known it in the pre and postmodern way. In the pre way, we're saying that anybody comes in this country, there's no borders. And if you just come in here illegally, you live here illegally, then you're the same as the citizen. You should vote. You should get entitlements. That's new. And then we're saying, you identify with your tribe first. If you're female or African-American, whatever ethnic background you are, that's who your community is. So politician goes, I'm so glad to be with the gay community. I'm so glad to be with the Hispanic community. They never say I'm so glad to be with an American community who happens incidentally to be Latino or something. That's new, I think. And then we're starting to lose the middle class too. We've got enormous amounts of wealth and a lot of poor that are subsidized. But if you're a young person, you go to college and you end up with $100,000 in debt for a high-priced education with a major that's not competitive, you're not going to get married. You're not going to have kids. You're not going to buy a car. You're not going to buy a house until you're in your mid-30s, if then. And then on the other end, the postmodern end, we've got all of these people who think they're citizens of the world. You know, you can't say a word about the World Health Organization or you can't get out of the, the Paris Accord or you can't say a word about NATO. We've lost the idea of America is a unique, exceptional place and we have our loyalties to America first as citizens. We also have this effort on the left to dismantle the constitution. So as we're speaking, there's a, let's get rid of the electoral college. It's not fair, even though there's a good argument in the, con, in the Federalist Papers and the Constitution for it. Let's make senators uh, elected by popular vote. It's not fair that Montana or Wyoming get two and California have two, and we have 20 million per senator, and they have 250,000. Let's get these. Every one of the Democratic candidates wanted to expand the court, 12 or 16 judges. So there's formal efforts to change the Constitution, dismantle the Second Amendment, etc. And then finally, we've created a huge state that's unelected. I know they don't like to use deep state, but we really saw it with the impeachment and the Mueller investigation. So who gave, uh, who gave Hillary Clinton the the ability to destroy 33,000 emails or Page, who destroyed 18,000 texts of Page and Strzok? Or who, uh, who said Christopher Steele is, is the authority on, on Russian collusion, then he destroyed all of his, his uh, evidence? Or who says that John Brennan can lie under oath to the, uh, to the Senate on two, two occasions without consequences? Or who was James Comey to you know, record private secret conversations with the president and go out on FBI 
appurtenances, record them and leak them to the press. We've got a whole deep state IRS under Lois Lerner that are acting as if they're a third type of, fourth type of government. They haven't been elected. They're not judges. They're not executives. They don't face the voters, and yet they have enormous, and I'm talking about the local building inspector to these crazy people who are telling you, you know, you have to wear a mask or we're going to put you in jail, or if you open up your takeout business, you're going to be put in jail. Those, those laws were never passed by anybody. They're edicts by executives, and they depend on the idea in the Constitution of martial law, but nobody's declared martial law. So, yeah. Gavin Newsom talking about the possibility. Just yeah. to very quickly uh, respect your time, um, minute or two. Do we have an historical example where a country and where this administrative state is beginning to take over ever grab their liberties back? It's very difficult. I mean, the bureaucracy in Byzantium, the Eastern Empire, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And what happens is, and it, it lasted for 1,100 years. So what happens is it gets to a point where it's not sustainable and it starts to erode and the, the society either collapses or there's a reform. Sometimes a reform are pretty violent under Justinian. I mean, they, I don't want to talk about it, but they got rid of 30,000. They put them in the uh, Hippodrome and got rid of the bureaucrats, the blues and the greens. But sometimes there's a popular reaction, but the trajectory, it doesn't go back to the let's go back to an agrarian republic. We're not gonna go back there because as affluence increases, people have different expectations. And you can see right now that in this crisis, people really do believe that they can stay home and the government owes them a complete salary. And you can pay that salary by printing money, even though they're not, you know, 40, 40 million people in California can be home and they're not creating labor or investment or capital or services, and yet they should be getting their $200,000 salary as they work for a university as an administrator, but they're staying home and doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And the public it only could be so warped because we're so affluent that they think we can, that they have a birthright or an entitlement. And I don't think that's gonna be possible. So we're going to see some pretty crazy things, I think, in the next 20 years where uh, this sophisticated state has not been working the way that the founders thought it would. And we're going to have to make some recalibrations or corrections or we're going to be in big trouble. So Mostly true. about debt, I think. Yeah, exactly. Victor Davis Hanson, thanks so much for taking some time with us on the podcast today and giving us some uh, great insights. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. And again, before you leave us, I just want to ask you, connect with us on our email list and our social media. Go to politicsisntnice.com. Click on the join our email list button. We'll get you information related to what we learned here today, but also um, other information that we're finding out along the way. It'll be a great resource for you. You can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash against nice and our twitter page at against nice go check us out there and we look forward to talking to you getting your feedback finding out more from you